Hello and welcome to the EIU Digital Economy Podcast. My name is Pete Swaby. The podcast is sponsored by DXE, an independent IT services company that specializes in digital transformation. We thank them for their support. This month, we're discussing the growing influence of Asian companies in the global digital economy. Until not long ago, the path of digital innovation was considered to be an eastward trajectory from the US to Western Europe and eventually Asia. But as the economic and geopolitical balance of power has shifted in Asia's direction, so too has the digital agenda. This is evident not only in the rise of the Chinese internet giants Baidu, Alibaba and Tencent, who challenged their Silicon Valley counterparts on crucial battlegrounds such as mobile innovation and AI research, but also the growing influence of Asian investment. Japanese telecommunications company SoftBank, for example, has emerged as a kingmaker for digital startups. What does this growing Asian influence mean for the digital economy? What does it mean for the future of the internet and for the global companies whose business increasingly relies upon it? To discuss these questions and more, I spoke to two guests in Singapore, Aisha Kanna, CEO of Addo AI, an artificial intelligence advisory startup, and Jason Davis, Associate Professor of Entrepreneurship and Family Enterprise at the Business School INSEAD. I started by asking Jason, what happened in China in particular that allowed its internet giants to become pioneers of digital innovation? That's a great question because I, you know, I think so many of us have been intrigued by the seemingly unique case of China, but it's actually important to realize what happened in China with digital innovation is actually almost exactly what happened in the U.S., uh, only a little bit later, at least in the broad strokes. Uh, you have a highly educated engineering workforce, uh, many of them trained abroad, uh, a government that's supporting innovation infrastructure and ensures that at least some of the value of those innovations can be captured by entrepreneurs, which creates an incentive to innovate. Uh, you also have an increasingly upward mobile population who are really hungry for digital solutions to many of the problems that they encounter in their lives, and they're actually willing to pay for them. So, you know, in the broad strokes, it's very similar to the story of the U.S. You know, uh, what, what's different is uh, one or two things. Uh, first, the timing. Uh, the U.S. came first uh, after big investments in computing in the 80s and 90s and eventually the dot-com boom. Uh, China came after, uh, and they can actually benefit from building on uh, those innovations from the rest of the world. Uh, another difference is scale, uh, 1.4 billion people versus about 325 million. And larger populations mean that digital platforms can scale up faster. Uh, but what's perhaps less appreciated is it actually creates a larger supply of engineering and entrepreneurial talent that helps to spur innovation. So in the broad strokes, uh, very similar to the U.S. story, just happening a bit later on a much larger scale. I tend not to think of it as a challenge. I actually don't see it that way. I, I don't see much of a challenge or at least competition in digital innovation, at least not in China or in the U.S. I, I mostly see these as two separate digital ecosystems that are doing very well, basically independently, and they probably have a lot that they can learn from each other. The scope of our conversation today is really kind of digital transformation in Asia. Uh, I appreciate there's a risk that we talk about Chinese companies because those are the most conspicuous examples of uh, digital innovation being led in Asia. But uh, is that right? Are we simplifying to focus on those Chinese companies or are there, uh, you know, is there a broader spread of this phenomenon? 
Well, we're certainly simplifying Asia just to focus on China, that's for sure, as uh, many folks in uh, Singapore would tell you. Um, Southeast Asia is a region that's almost as big as China in terms of talent uh, and GDP. And there are many local uh, innovations uh, and digital companies that are popping up here. You know, probably my favorite is the example of Gojek uh, in Indonesia. And, you know, it would be easy to think of Gojek as just a copy of Uber, but that would really misunderstand the platform. Uh, Gojek is ride-sharing, but it also includes food delivery and courier and all sorts of other activities. Um, and, and what they really did is they took digital technology and applied it to the problems that you would find, the local problems in Indonesia. Anyone who's ever been to Jakarta can tell you that the big problem there, of course, is uh, the traffic um, and the logistical and transportation problems. So. You know, what the, uh, what the founder, uh, Nadim uh, Makarim, actually did was he took some of that learning from Uber and he tried to solve the local problem of transportation. Um, they focused like a laser on those local problems and turned down lots of other interesting temptations that a lot of digital companies in the West would have been tempted by, like doing messaging or blockchain, and just focused like a laser on, you know, solving the transportation and logistics problem and quickly, quickly became the most important digital company or platform in Indonesia as a result. Aisha, your work involves advising companies on, on, on AI. And it seems that, that AI in particular is, is perhaps the first technological wave where we've really seen that Asian companies and again, in particular, Chinese organizations are not just keeping up with their their peers in in the West and in the US that are actually perhaps in some cases uh, taking the lead. Is that correct? And if so, what do you attribute that to? Um, A very important part of building artificial intelligence engines is having data. A lot of the models that are being used today are actually conceived of by researchers in the West. But when it comes to their implementation and application to problem use cases, China, Indonesia, even Pakistan, all of these Asian countries are galloping forth because they have so much information now that they're getting from the mobile phone uh, and the usage of the mobile phone, which is generating huge amounts of data. And because the mobile phone is not only to make calls or messaging, but also used for a variety of things, everything from food delivery, as was just mentioned, to transportation, to even banking now, there is a diverse and useful set of data that is being used by these companies to create and model new kinds of businesses and services. So one thing, obviously, is the explosion of data and what that enables any company to do when it comes to artificial intelligence. The other thing is talent. And um, as was rightly said earlier, there's a great deal of talent. But one of the reasons why in countries other than China, and China there has been a consistent effort of investment in engineering, but we begin to see talent rising in other parts of Asia as well is because of the proliferation of MOOCs and the fact that people self-teach themselves so much. In fact, if you look at digital freelancers, a huge population of freelancers who work online come from Asia. And a lot of them are self-taught in technology and increasingly now so in data science and then machine learning through courses in Coursera, Udemy, uh, even Audacity. So I think these two together are creating an environment where AI companies 
can actually build the products they need. Now, the reason they're innovative is not only because of the talent and the data. The reason they're innovative is because of the unique problems that they're facing. And if you've ever been in a developing country, you know there is a plethora of problems um, all around us. And that's why we see some very interesting companies. And I agree, there has been a great deal of focus on China. But we should now begin to move away from that and see some of the interesting unicorns coming out of India, out of Indonesia, and then beyond that, Malaysia, Vietnam, and the Philippines as well. That's a great uh, point, Aisha. Maybe I could also raise uh, another great example about uh, uh, AI uh, here in Asia. Now, it is a Chinese company. I'm thinking of uh, the story of ByteDance. I'm actually writing a teaching case about them. Now, they're an interesting company. They're, they started with a product that was a bit of a news aggregator, uh, kind of like a BuzzFeed or a Reddit on steroids uh, that uses AI to recommend just terrific stories that people will like. Um, it was recently, they were recently cited as the world's most valuable startup, uh, and they're really giving, you know, the original Chinese tech companies a run for their money, you know, the Baidus and Alibabas and Tencents of the world, uh, just because they're becoming so important uh, in the economy, and they're actually a new company. What's interesting about uh, uh, ByteDance and AI is what they did is they took their learnings from AI in China, and they started building new products that would target uh, markets outside China, uh, and particularly the U.S., uh, Southeast Asia, uh, and India with uh, new products, uh, Musical.ly and TikTok. So they basically took those capabilities and applied them to video, uh, short videos, which have become incredibly popular uh, in places like India and the U.S. Uh, watching TikTok is incredibly addictive because it, uh, it learns to give you the videos that you actually want to see using, uh, using machine learning. Uh, but anyways, that's a, that's a very interesting trend and category is, is Asian uh, companies building on their AI capabilities and taking them abroad in different sorts of products. That's interesting. So, so, so while there are these two ecosystems, in a way, there is beginning to be cross-pollination and the insights you can draw from the Chinese market may, in some circumstances, transfer. Absolutely. In fact, I think there's been plenty of news now that Chinese startups are beginning to look outside China. I don't think they'll remain as separate ecosystems. I think, in fact, they will both integrate, collaborate, and clash as well in terms of how they approach data, how they approach privacy, and how they approach innovation. But this idea of inter-regional and inter-Asian a transfer of knowledge and innovation, I think, is very powerful. We see that Oyo, which is a company in India, started to provide a way for people to have low-cost um, hotels that are available to um, travelers across India, just raised a billion dollars. The majority of that money was to expand into China, not to go into Europe or the U.S. Yeah, that's right. I think this uh, inter-Asia um, transfer of knowledge and innovation is going to be incredibly powerful. You know, we're starting to see that, especially here in Southeast Asia, I think. Um, you know, it's a very multipolar region with no one dominant power, uh, and, and countries and entrepreneurs have had to work with each other here, especially in Singapore, uh, for a long time. A good example of that is uh, the recent competition between Uber, Grab, and Gojek, uh, which has been very interesting. Um, you know, Grab ended up acquiring Uber's operations in Southeast Asia. And as you can imagine, that was a very inspiring story to see a local company um, from Singapore and Malaysia uh, beat one of the global uh, U.S. behemoths. And 
you know, the local newspapers really had a field day uh, with that story. But really, it was a, a cross-regional story. It was a story of building up a big population of users that spanned multiple countries and people who like to travel a lot, you know, within the region. Um, so that's uh, that's going to be an increasingly important trend. And, you know, we maybe could look to Southeast, uh, Southeast Asia as, you know, an indicator of what the future might be like for the world. That's interesting. So, so we talked a little bit about the, the Asian startup scene. What can you tell our, our global listenership about the startup scene in Asia? What, what are some defining characteristics? Are there particular technologies uh, startups over there tend to focus on or operate in? Well, I think, that, first of all, the scene is really booming. So f- five, six years ago, when I moved to Singapore, the ecosystem in Singapore was just starting off. And the traditional barrier to startups in Asia has been this sense of shame at failing. And this is a very cultural phenomenon, and it is present almost in all Asian countries. But now, having seen the rise of startups and the, the media and how they have portrayed startups and the agile development and failure often of startup entrepreneurs, there is more risk tolerance and also there is some subsidization of the process by the governments themselves. So we now begin to see an ecosystem is truly forming and it has been kind of boiling for the last couple of um, years now in Asia. Now, how is it different? One of the things that's interesting is that it's not so different in some ways because a number of the people who have started it have actually been repats or people who come back to Asia. So if you look at myself, I left Asia to go to the U.S., spent many years there, and then came back to Asia to work and start my AI business here. And there are many, many examples of people, including the founders of many of these well-known unicorns that um, are Asians who came back. And so they bring back with them a lot of the culture and agile methods of technology. In terms of the technology stack itself, of course, there is this ability to leapfrog. And that means that they always start with the latest technology, just because they're starting late. And In some cases, such as when they're looking at the problems of the underbanked in Asia or unbanked, they're able to leapfrog past all the legacy systems that have been um, basically strangling fintech startups and other fintech companies sometimes in the U.S. and the U.K. and other places. So what we see is that there's there's innovation, um, there's great appetite, and then there is a lot of... China, it stands out a little bit because there's a lot of what Reid Hoffman calls blitzscaling. And blitzscaling is a word that he uses in his latest book, which is spending vast amount of money, uh, huge amounts of money, even more so than has been seen in the West for startups to compete with each other. But that's uniquely a Chinese phenomenon, I think. And that, that is something that we see in China in particular, not so much in the other places, is the use of capital to acquire consumers at, um, at a rate more than even Silicon Valley has. So these are some of the characteristics as the race is on to capture this emerging middle class where five people join the middle class every second in Asia. You, you mentioned finance there. And, and of course, um, uh, the, the proliferation of, um, of startups and technology companies is only one side of the story. We've also seen uh, in recent years, a, a huge increase in the amount of venture capital investment 
originating from Asia, most notably in China and India, uh, and not just in Asian companies, also in in companies around the world. So, so Aisha, what what influence do you think this has on digital innovation? Are there particular demands or interests of Asian investors? And and how will that shape the, the digital economy? Absolutely. I mean, you know, investors have such a lot of say on companies and where they are expanding and growing and what they're investing in. So when we see a more Asian form or Asian group of investors that are the majority investors as they were when it came to AI funding, the majority of it came from China in 2017, for example, then we're going to see certain implications of that. First of all, there's a great interest in Asian investors, especially if they are government um, investors, that they have a transfer of technology. So they want to learn what is happening in the West. They invest over there in those companies, and they learn from them to bring that knowledge back home and spur um, regional or, in particular, national innovation. The second, of course, is this trend to invest specifically to bring it back to Asia. Remember, Asia is where the growth is happening. There's a very young population in some of the countries here and um, For example, there are 100 million people under the age of 35 just in Pakistan itself. So you see these humongous uh, hordes of people who will be future consumers, and there's a desire to invest in companies to bring them here. And then finally, as I was pointing out, that there is this inter-regional investment as well. And of course, we've seen that in SoftBank, the Japanese VC Goliath, where they have invested in many companies in the West, but increasingly are also investing in many regional companies whose main focus is to expand regionally. So I think we see a much more Asian face and Asian focus on where these companies are putting their efforts and their expansion. I think uh, the investment question is is really interesting because the patterns in Asia are a little bit different than we see in the West. Um, uh, take an ex- another example. You know, I, we mentioned uh, Uber and Grab and Gojek and uh, how the newspapers in Southeast Asia really love the fact that you know Uber got beat. But you know, if you look a little more closely, you actually see something different. You know, probably the real winner in that fight was the Japanese bank SoftBank, um, who had common investments in both Uber and Grab. Now, we don't know for a fact, but you know you can guess that when you have common investments in two competitors and you're the, uh, the large investor, that you would push for consolidation. And after that consolidation, of course, SoftBank's investments became even more valuable. Um, um, by the way, uh, Uber made out like bandits, taking away something like 20% ownership in Grab, uh, just like they did with uh, uh, the ride-sharing company Didi in China. So the story is actually quite complex. You know, on the surface, it may appear like it's one region versus another. If you look more deeply at the investment patterns, you know, uh, there's a lot of growth opportunity, a lot of money being made, and a lot of cross-regional and uh, cross-syndicate deals uh, that are helping to realize uh, value creation through investment. Great. So we've talked quite a lot about the the uh, the digital sector, what you might call the digital sector. But but Jason, what can you tell us about the adoption of of digital technology by what we might call traditional companies in Asia? So so is is this phenomenon limited to the digital sector, or is there also um, innovation and and um, pursuit of digital technology by conventional companies in Asia that is that is keeping pace or, or outstripping their counterparts in, in the U.S. and Europe? 
Oh, it's a massive race. Uh, most of the established companies in Asia are, at least in Southeast Asia, are very well aware of uh, issues around digital transformation. Probably the industry where you're seeing it happen fastest uh, is in banking, uh, both on the retail uh, and commercial side. So, you know, all, all the countries in Southeast Asia have their own uh, retail leading banks, and almost all of them are investing uh, large amounts in things like platforms and AI and, and sometimes even blockchain. Um, they have a sense, they have, in some sense, they have an advantage. Um, they don't have the huge legacy systems. They don't have to, uh, they can quickly pay catch up, as uh, Isha said before. So they can actually throw away you know, the simple systems they had before and, in some sense, start from scratch. Our listenership will be uh, people from companies all around the world. W- what does this trend, this digitization of Asia, the digital transformation of Asia, what does it mean for global companies operating in the region? Um, d- is there a single digital transformation that a company can do all, the, all around the world? Or are there local digitization strategies? Well, of course, the answer is both and. Uh, um, you know, global companies can bring best practice uh, solutions at scale, and that's exactly what the cloud providers are trying to do. Of course, they have a strategy that is one, one size fits all. Most of the value, though, is going to come with the customization. It's thinking hard about how does something like AI actually create value for local problems. Uh, let me give you an example. So I, I recently uh, was chatting with uh, the head of a large call center in the Philippines. And of course, you know, I had my list of three or four things I wanted to talk about. And the first thing was AI and, and natural language processing. And I showed them uh, the Google example, the, the famous video of, uh, you know, the Google system that can call up and make a reservation uh, with a real human. And they told me, you know, Prof. Jason, we just need to stop right now. We only want to talk about this <laughs> natural language. Because you can imagine for a call center, this is their biggest cost. I mean, there are thousands of people in the call center um, who need to be trained, sometimes retrained. Uh, they told me that their biggest problem was, was actually not uh, the cost of employees, because uh, labor cost is actually relatively low uh, in the Philippines. It was actually the training cost because the turnover is so high in the call center. Well, of course, with AI, you train it once and you're done. Um, so that's an example of a very general phenomena, which I'm sure Aisha can tell us so much about, AI, natural language processing, machine learning, but applying it to a very specific business problem that makes sense uh, for Asia. I, I think it's so great that you just talked about that because I'm just coming from a meeting with one of the largest media houses in Asia talking about uh, robo-journalism and the fact that the same conversations that are happening in the West are almost simultaneously happening here. Google just released its BERT algorithm just in November of last year, which is a much more sophisticated natural language processing um, framework, and we were talking about it right now. So what you see now is that the speed of adoption of Asian companies is not lagging behind uh, years. If anything, it's months, and that is also going to start narrowing. Right. It, it certainly seems from your comments that, you know, we shouldn't be thinking about any lag at all, really, that, that the, the, the same meetings, the same conversations are happening in parallel at the same time. Exactly. So uh, uh, we're seeing a sort of convergence of, of the, the pace of innovation in uh, the digital economy in, in the US, certainly, uh, and Asia, and perhaps with uh, Europe having its, its own identity. Do you think this is leading to 
uh, what you might describe as a global digital business culture. So is this uh, the future of the way all uh, businesses operate? Uh, or are there, do you expect there to be still unique elements of the Asian approach to digital transformation compared to the U.S. approach? Well, I actually do believe a global digital business culture is emerging. Uh, it's actually great to live uh, in Southeast Asia uh, because it probably will end up looking a lot like what we see here. Um, so we're recording this here in Singapore, which is a very cosmopolitan country with people of Chinese, Indian, Malaysian, European descent. Uh, by the way, Silicon Valley looks very similar, I might add. Uh, but anyhow, you know, some sort of global culture does seem to be emerging, but it's, it's actually multipolar. Um, everyone in this global digital culture needs to be able to interact with entrepreneurs from Silicon Valley, Chinese, Indian entrepreneurs, even though your own particular cultural pole may, may be from one place or another. So there seems to be a huge value on being cosmopolitan just because the resources, the knowledge, the expertise, and the markets are, you know, are distributed across boundaries. So if you want to survive in this global digital competitive environment, you need to be able to interact with people from these different cultures. I, I would agree with Jason. I think there is kind of a global culture emerging, but I would like to say that it is time for Asia to take the lead. Um, we have often let Europe and the U.S. take the lead, and we have learned a lot from them, but as we begin to color the future of the internet and the future of digital businesses with our problems, our users, our way of understanding their needs and being innovative, building these super apps, whether it's Gojek in Indonesia, WeChat in China, or PhonePay in India, all of them are exactly doing the same thing, having multiple ways to service the customer on just a mobile app. We need to have some responsibility and it's, uh, we can begin to see that now. Instead of just being seen as this crazy commercial hub, uh, we should now also be seen as respecting intellectual property, as having a view on ethical governance of data and artificial intelligence, and having a regulatory framework for all these algorithms. I believe that we are beginning to see that in Singapore with the development of an ethics committee on artificial intelligence, and we will see more and more of that across Asia. And I think the world will be surprised that there is more to us than just the business opportunity that we represent in the digital world. Great. And so to finish, where do you, where do you think this is leading? Um, to put it this way, uh, in 10 years' time, as a result of Asia's growing influence in the digital economy, how will we, both as individuals uh, and businesses, experience and use the internet differently? How is the digital economy itself going to evolve as a result of this influence? The, the quick answer is I have no idea. Uh, <laughs> and if I did, I would, I would probably be an investor, not a professor. Um, but honestly, it's going to be interesting. Um, what's interesting is having a seat here in Southeast Asia, which is so multipolar. Um, a, a day doesn't go by which I, where I'm not surprised to see some new innovation, some new company, some new interesting government policy, some new problem that I didn't think existed before. And it's that complexity, that unpredictability, sometimes even that ambiguity, uh, which actually makes digital very interesting. So I, I wouldn't even deign to predict uh, uh, what the Internet will look like in 10 years because I would have no idea. I think the Internet will move um, from 
the phone or the laptop that we are used to finding it on and truly become the fabric of urban environments. And so maybe it will just become invisible. And a lot of the digital economy will be interwoven in these so-called smart cities, or as we call them in Singapore, smart nation frameworks, where um, banking, a lot of these uh, apps will almost become invisible Of course, the pros of that are many because you have higher quality of life in terms of efficiency, productivity. But on the other hand, there are also cons to consider in terms of data privacy, data security. And these are the questions we must grapple with and how we grapple with them and how much we educate people on their rights in this future digital economy. I think that's where uh, we will really see how this whole setup will evolve, especially with artificial intelligence and the play. We need to do more than just watch it happen. Each one of us needs to have a proactive role in shaping that future together. Aisha, Jason, thank you both very much for joining us. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening to the EIU Digital Economy Podcast. Tune in again next month when we'll be discussing the state of digital democracy. To make sure you don't miss an episode, please subscribe on your preferred podcast platform. Thanks again to our sponsors, DXC, an independent IT services company that specializes in digital transformation. And thank you for listening.